Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and a proud JOMA member, and I'm really honored and really excited to be interviewing Dr. Rachel Fryman. Dr. Fryman, PhD, LCSW, supports adolescents and adults with ADHD. Together with clients, she explores the impact of ADHD on relationships, academic achievement, job performance, and overall well-being. Rachel helps clients to identify and incorporate strategies to manage organizational and time management challenges so that every day is less stressful and more meaningful. In addition to private practice, Rachel is a social worker at Adelphi University's Learning Resource Program for students with ADHD and learning differences. She teaches at Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University and has experience in community mental health and special education administration. Rachel earned her PhD at Smith College and received advanced clinical training from NYU Silver School of Social Work. She supervises students, consults with clinicians and educators, and writes and lectures about the intersection of mental health and Judaism. So prior to this interview, I interviewed two other um, professionals on ADHD. I interviewed Dr. Jennifer Bain, a pediatric neurologist, on the basics of ADHD, including medication. And I also interviewed Abigail Gimpel, who's an ADHD coach, on all sorts of other things you can do to help your child with ADHD that do not involve medication. Um, this interview with Dr. Fryman is really going to focus more on um, helping your older teen transition from high school into college and a little bit into real life after with organizational and time management techniques and learning to be more independent. And so I think she gives a lot of really good tips. Also, for anybody who has ideas about someone to, for me to interview or they themselves want to be interviewed, please reach out to me at health, H-E-A-L-T-H at joma.org. Um, Dr. Fryman herself um, requested to be interviewed, so I'm really excited to be interviewing her on these very important topics. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Fryman. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Hi. 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 My pleasure. So this is a great, great topic, and I've never covered it, and I am so, so excited that you're doing this with me. I did do a, a long interview with a, um, a pediatric neurologist on ADHD. I did another one with um, Abigail Gimple, who is an ADHD mm, coach. Sure. Yeah, but there's a lot more that we didn't cover, so I'm really looking forward to getting into nitty-gritty practical details with you. Um, I think that for a lot of parents... Getting their kids ready for college is a real transition moment. And I think that a lot of parents don't know. There's so much they don't know that would really make a huge difference. And you're also helping your child grow up as a neurodivergent person. Um, and when I say neurodivergent, I am referring to primarily here ADHD and learning disabilities, even though, of course, it also refers to autism spectrum. That is so complex that we're only going to like touch on it, I believe. 
So I'm going to, I'm going to have you start with just giving us a setting of the challenges that this population of, of kids with ADHD and learning disabilities face. So one of my favorite titles of an ADHD book, not necessarily my favorite book, but one of my favorite titles is you mean I'm not crazy. I'm not lazy, stupid, or crazy by Kate Kelly and Peggy Romando. And I think the title is so telling because there's, when you walk around with ADHD, there's like this discrepancy. There's like what you feel like is your potential, but for some reason you're just not getting there. So it's kind of like you're, Teachers don't quite understand you. Parents might not understand you. Siblings might not understand you. Friends might not understand you. And it's like, you're constantly not living up to your potential. And, and that and that's really hard emotionally. You're feeling disappointed that you can't consistently meet your goals. And that over time, you know, that really is where the self-esteem issues come, comorbidities or coexisting other conditions of maybe anxiety or depression. Um, and w- one of the things that I really emphasize at work, um, and, and honestly, in my life, is you need to find a passion. You have to find something that Ted Hallowell calls the right difficult and really learn how to thrive with what you're good at and learn to compensate in areas where you're struggling. You know, ADHD is an executive functioning disorder, quote unquote, but really I look at it as a condition. It's something that over time you can learn to manage, you can learn to live with, you might need daily, weekly, monthly, annual boosters, check-ins, but it, it really is something that over time you, you can learn how to thrive with, even though it's difficult. I, I don't mean to minimize the work, um, the effort that goes into managing and thriving with ADHD, but I I think one of the most rewarding things of working with ADHD young adults is that with the right intervention, these challenges do become manageable. Um, And, um, you know, 11% of kids, approximately two thirds of adults um, onto adulthood um, are diagnosed with ADHD. This is according to Chad um, and um, Chad's research on ADHD. Um, You know, my clients in, in the work that we do together really um, try to find their voice, try to find their passion. A- and that process of learning to self-advocate is often a challenge. You know, learn. Yeah. Right, right. And what I'm thinking about that it's important to point out is that these are invisible disabilities. So you have, you know, blindness or deafness, you know, it's, it's apparent or cerebral palsy or something, you're in a wheelchair. That's like the classic disabled person is in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. but they're invisible disabilities. Right. And, and the comorbidities, the, the other existing conditions right. that go along with them, the anxiety, the sleep disturbances, the, the ununderstood oppositional behavior, which might not be oppositional. It might just be the frustration, the impulse mm. control difficulties and, and, and feeling so misunderstood. Um, it, it, right. It, it's, it's, that's really one of the challenges, especially out in the workplace, especially at school, where the challenges of ADHD really, really um, are, are very pronounced, even though it does impact social relationships, familial relationships. Um, but so much of an adolescent, young adult life is spent in an academic setting, is spent in school, that it, it really becomes a, a tremendous challenge living with the ADHD as, as a student. Right. I find that the first thing is for the, the person with ADHD themselves to really understand 
Because if you don't understand what's going on, right, then you can't advocate for yourself. Right, right, right. Right. So, so, um, you know, if we're looking at what parents can and, and, and could do um, for their high school or, or, or college age student um, child, um, I, I think that's where the psychoeducation piece comes in. Mm-hmm. Really, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in the business of telling parents how to parent and you right. know, every situation is different. Um, but what I have learned is that ADHD kids are particularly sensitive. They experience rejection. And even if they don't pick up on all social cues, they know that they, they have like this, this sense of when someone is genuine, when someone really cares and when they're not being taken seriously. Um, the most important thing that I can really think of is like the unconditional love of, of a child and, and understanding for the ADHD child that the ADHD is a condition that that you're not rejecting them that but the structure and the and the limits that you're setting at home for them to thrive um, is, is really in their best interest and, and that as a parent is really really difficult providing a, a space for structure and unconditional love simultaneously um, where we know the ADHD young adults adolescent can thrive it is really really hard and, and learning about, how ADHD is impacting them on an individual level, as a family, uh, it is really part of that acceptance process. And I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that mm-hmm. later, but. Um, right, because I'm also thinking that just like the, you know, the child or the adult has to understand themselves, the parent has to understand, you know, why won't you be better than that? Why can't you do this? Are you lazy, right? Like, not am I lazy, but are you are lazy? Like, it, it has to be the whole family. Right, and, and that's why I, I'm really, uh, I really practice as part of a multimodal treatment approach, meaning that um, we're thinking of evidence-based practice. We're thinking of what we know from science and what we know from, from research on ADHD and what is evidence-based practice today. What are best practices? What are the best interventions for working with ADHD adolescents and young adults? Um, and, and really, we know that it, there's not one approach that will work for every family and that that being open-minded, knowing that maybe you, even though you're a fabulous parent, you might need parent training, you know, um, that will help you with understanding the diagnosis that you're not pathologizing it, but you're embracing it. You look at it as a medical condition, like you would any other condition. Um, It's not something to be ashamed of and have books in your home on ADHD, Mm. on on what it's like to live as a, as a child, as an adolescent, as um, a college student um, with ADHD. You know, I, I, on my desk at work, have a stack of ADHD college books. And I say, look, these books are sold on Amazon. They are sold because students like you are reading them and, and benefiting from them. So normalizing the experience as much as possible is really, really important. And we know that the more that we take away the, um, the stigma um, that um, students and, and kids in general are more willing to use the resources available to them. Um, so, so I'm I'm a fan of parent training and family therapy when necessary. You know, um, it might be a one time, it might be on an occasional basis, or it might be an on, ongoing basis. But I, I love to see when there's prevention rather than being right. reactive. Right, and, right, right. Be proactive. Um, 
Yes. So, so the, the, and there's no shame in prevention that if we take away the stigma, we look at this as psychoeducation, doing what you need to do to help your kids thrive. I always think of, you know, every child has their own experience of how they need to be educated. And, and, and maybe sometimes that includes going to a therapist or going to an educational consultant, a coach um, to really, really help them with um, tools, both as an individual and as a family. And then there's the medication management piece you know, that we know that 80% of the time ADHD medication can be effective. Mm -hmm. So that seeing a qualified pediatric neurologist, developmental pediatrician, um, psychiatrist that really specializes in adolescent or, or pediatric medicine is, is can really, really be life changing. I, I remember back um, 12 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, I worked with a, a client who had been on a vitamin regimen, taking a lot of omegas. And there is evidence that, that that they can be beneficial. And he said to his mom one day, you know what, I just I want to be able to enjoy Mishmar. I want to be able to enjoy after school clubs like my friends. Um, and she's like, Okay, let's try let's try something. The first week on the stimulant was like, taking off the sunglasses. He was able wow. to enjoy the sunshine, like enjoy seeing his friends and learning after school. And it wasn't like something that he was like afraid of that he wouldn't be able to, to sit down and participate, but it was really something he was able to do and feel part of, um, you know, the, the, the after school mishmar culture, the after school club culture at, at his school. So I, I always reflect back because the family was very open to alternative alternative methods first. They were in therapy with me. They were doing really lifestyle changes, sleeping, and we'll talk more about that sleeping, eating, um, coaching, but you know, he wasn't responding to, um, to the vitamin regimen and, and even just a small dose of medication for him was really what, what, um, helped him enjoy school and, and socializing after school. Um, and, and as parents really thinking about those extracurricular activities, learning where ADHD kids can thrive because the classroom, even if they're brilliant, um, can be so difficult to sit still and focus and not be given the, the quiet space to hyper-focus, to really, really concentrate on something if they're really interested in it. Um, and, and we know, and we can talk more about it, the, the benefits of exercise, um, you know, the dopamine and the serotonin that, that's released during exercise. Um, John Rady, uh, uh, a researcher at Harvard calls it, um, it's like the, the Prozac and the stimulant all in one, that exercise really has benefits um, that are, are far exceed just exercising. Um, and, you know, and, um, you know, going back to, to parenting and psychoeducation, the, the psychoeducation is a lifelong process. Um, during COVID, we learned so much about mindfulness. There were apps like Calm and Headspace that um, became commonplace on a lot of a lot of young adults' iPhones. And and then the research indicated that it really was effective. That um, you know, Calm the Calm app in particular, which I, I was using at when COVID hit in 2020 with my clients. Um, they reported it was really, really effective. And now research supports that as well. Exercise again. So these, these are interventions and, and part of the psychoeducation, part of the education process of learning to embrace the ADHD. Right. I think it's really important to have this multimodal approach. And I'll tell you the truth, though, I find for a lot of my patients, they don't get that. 
they either take medication or they don't. I find that for some kids, they're on the milder end of the ADHD spectrum. And I do think it's a spectrum. It's not you have it or you don't, you have strep or you don't, you're pregnant or you're not. ADHD is a spectrum. So I do find that those family, you know, those patients in my practice who are on the milder end often can do well with just a little accommodations, modifications, sometimes some fish oil or whatever, omega-3 um, and others, they may have tried it, but they really need more. And I think of it like glasses, like some kids have a very small prescription and can see without their glasses mm-hmm. and others, they're, they're trying so hard. You know, when you talk about, you know, let them do things that, that are, are fun for them or, or they're built on their own natural strengths. It can't be said enough how much work goes into functioning for a lot of these kids. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and, and finding, and finding that balance is, you know, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money. You know, looking at the therapies, the affordable therapies, the accessible, the the time and the resources that go into um, the multimodal approach of of hitting it at all sides. You know, one of the things that I say to parents is you can do one at a time. You can figure out one at a time what works. So you're starting with coaching and it's really hard. So maybe in addition to coaching, there can be some family therapy you know, that parent-child interaction training for younger kids, um, more behavioral. um, There's a new approach from um, um, Dr. Sibley on parent-teen therapy for executive functioning deficits and ADHD that's really geared towards teenagers. Um, So there are evidence-based approaches, research-backed ways of of managing as a family, and and, and you can do one at a time. It doesn't have to be everything at once. Um, You know, something that is accessible and doable at home which, you know, we, I mentioned a minute ago, it is exercise, is right. sleep, is mm-hmm. diet. Um, diet. And these are small changes mm-hmm. that um, take a lot of effort, but over time can really pay off you know, thinking about a sleep routine, and we can, we can talk more about this. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of comorbidities between ADHD and, and sleep disturbances, right. Cadian rhythm um, disorders. So one of the things that I really work on with my clients is developing a bedtime routine. I, I it's so cliche to say, turn off your screen an hour before you go to bed. If you have a difficult time, keep your phone in the other room, but, but really, it's really, really important. Um, taking a shower, brushing your teeth consistently, something ADHD kids really, really adolescents, adults all struggle with that routine. Anything routine is really hard. Um, But the more you do it, the more, the more it becomes part of, you know, your, your life. And, and over time there might be setbacks, but in general, if, if you can figure out a way that helps you sleep better, a way, a diet that works for you. If it means cutting down the sugars, cutting down the caffeine, only having it in the morning, limiting naps, um, you know, you figure out what your triggers are and you really can customize it to your own needs. Um, Those little, little changes, they don't cost a lot of money. They just take a lot of discipline. And and as an ADHD adolescent or or adult, you know, if, if you're in a home, if the whole home culture changes, um, you know, if there is a giant calendar and a family Google Doc and maybe a, a biweekly meeting of everyone's schedule, you know, you're modeling these little things that don't necessarily cost a lot of money, um, but they but they do take effort, they do take time, um, but over time can, can really have tremendous payoffs. 
I am going to say, though, that a lot of families of kids with ADHD, the, the parents, one or both, often have ADHD. And so I don't want anyone to feel bad and say, oh, now I'm not organized enough to help my kid be organized. I, I think you can be a work in progress and model that for your child. I always go back to Winnicott. And I, I talk a lot mm-hmm. about this with my clients. You just have to be good enough. Right. You, know, you just have to try your best. Um, you know, and that and and that good enough parenting might mean that that you're using a support system to parent with you, you know, and, and it might be a really great babysitter that helps out and gives some structure. It might be a grandma or a grandpa or, um, you know, an, a, a sibling in the house that, that that's really modeling bedtime. Like it, it can be really simple on little changes. Um, you know, there's a recent um, New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, little itsy bitsy habits. Mm changes in habits over time, these little atomic changes over time can make a tremendous difference. So you, you know, we do know that there is a, a genetic predisposition to ADHD. Um, there are other theories of environmental factors and other things, but, you know, just clinically, you know, um, if you do see yourself in your diagnosed child, um, there, there is adult ADHD, two thirds of, of children don't grow out of it. So um, as a family taking many steps, many, many little changes to bedtime, to diet, to exercise, um, less screen time, those, those little changes over time are, are modeling. You want to talk more about screen time? Because <laughs> I do. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think one of the, one of the, without shaming, we're not going to screen shame that we're, that we're, that we're, <laughs> uh, that we're, um, that the light and the energy, it, it, it's captivating and it stimulates the brain. Like, and, right. um, you know, we live in a distracted nation and ADHD, you know, you know, it, it's a neurodevelopmental condition, meaning it, it affects, um, the central nervous system and the way that we think about things and, and, screen time is really exciting and it's captivating and you can hyper-focus. I, I have, um, I've recently been learning more through my, my clients and students about esports, you know, um, online sporting and that there's scholarships and tournaments and, um, that there's really this other universe of, of electronic games, e-games. And, um, and it's very exciting. And for the ADHD brain, you know, you're, you're sitting in front of a screen, you're getting the, the positive energy um, and, and it's captivating, but it's also really hard to separate yourself from the screen, to limit that screen time. The hyper-focus is there. Um, so it's really a matter of learning. And, and, and this is really my approach of learning healthy habits. Mm-hmm. Do you need apps on your computer to turn it off? Do you have to say, you know what? 11 o'clock, I'm done. I want to be able to wind down and go to bed by midnight, you know, college students or one o'clock or whenever poker games on the floor are ending. Um, and, and, um, and that discipline is hard, but it is really important. Right. No, it's really, really true. You could do things like turn off the router. <laughs> yeah. At home. And, and there are families that do yeah. that. And, then, and that's an example of healthy habits for the whole family. You know, turning off the router at 11 o'clock being like, okay, no one, whatever, you know, whatever happens after 11 can, can be dealt with at 7am tomorrow morning. Right, right. You know what, we really need to talk about school, because I find that a lot of parents are really sensitive to their kids, and they really work on making an environment um, that's really helpful that their kids can thrive in, and then there's school. Right, right. So, 
so for the high school student, you know, I, it's so important for them to be part of that mm-hmm. conversation of what are their accommodations, whether or not their classroom accommodations or testing accommodations. Um, and, and I, especially senior year to involve your, your kids in that, in that conversation, invite them to the, if they have an IEP to invite them to the IEP meeting, if they have a 504 to invite them to the 504 meeting, be part of the conversation with the psychologist at the school, but also, you know, get up some updated neuropsychological testing, meet with a neuropsychologist if possible, or more affordable there are testing, um, testing can be available, like, you know, at, it, at Hofstra or at Adelphi through interns or externs in the graduate school, where you can really, really spend time understanding where there might be learning, learning differences, you know, um, I, I believe it's around 50% of um, adolescents diagnosed with ADHD have a learning difference, whether mm-hmm. it's dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, but that, that often there's other learning things happening at the same time, not all the time, but sometimes, and it's worth ruling out and really understanding. Um, so really involving your, your, your adolescents in the, in the conversation of what the best accommodations are, what the best testing is, what the best services are, even if. if right. I, I want to go back a little bit and, and just say the difference between an IEP and a 504. Sure, sure. So uh, an IEP is a in individualized education plan. Um, children, whether or not they're in private school or public school, are, are entitled to accommodations. There was this IDEA Act, um, a, a national act that said that special education is, is, a, is a right. And children in school deserve an education and, and an education like clinical and RLP Darko, like what we what we know from our, our own tradition that every child has to be educated according to their ways. So an IEP is a is an education plan that offers services, whether or not that's counseling, speech, occupational therapy, um, physical therapy, uh, resource room assisted technology for learning how to use technology um, to support their learning. Um, so really a, a number of services, and that's just a short list, as well as classroom accommodations. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to throw out a common one for um, an ADHD might be an ADHD student might be preferential seating, meaning either in the front or maybe in the back, depending on what their, their needs are. Um, use of breaks, maybe um, maybe access to a word processor if there's dysgraphia and they need to type or use of a calculator if there's, um, if there's difficulty with math, with calcula, um, as well as testing accommodations, whether or not it's that they have extra time or don't necessarily need extra time, but need breaks that they can't focus for that long. So use of breaks or maybe they're Scantron exempt that because of the visual spatial challenges, they don't need to fill out the Scantron. Someone else can do that for them. So there, there can be so many accommodations under the IEP and, and really the neuropsychological, the psychological testing would really inform um, parents in the district and the school as well, um, what services and supports are needed either on a building level or on a, on a district level. And so, I'm sorry, who's, who's eligible for an IEP? The reason I'm saying this is this comes up because typically those with ADHD are not eligible for an IEP. So ADHD can, it can be under the category of other health impairment, OHI. Um, and that's where it's really important to get good testing. 
you know, really to understand if there is uh, another learning difference that is, is contributing to, to legitimate struggles and, and, and whether or not they are behind because of their learning differences and, and because of the ADHD, whether or not they can't concentrate in class or they can't concentrate on tests. So really the IEP is meant to make it a, a, a more of a level playing field. Um, and that's really the IEP that is offered by the school's district and it, and the, the, and it includes services, whereas the 504 is a medical accommodation plan. So if you have ADHD, that is a medical diagnosis, you would have a letter from your doctor and the doctor would then make recommendations on what would be best for you in school. The doctor's not making recommendations for services in school. They're making recommendations for um, classroom accommodations and testing accommodations. So the 504 plan is a medical accommodation plan that offers recommendations for classroom accommodations, such as preferential seating, breaks, access to word uh, access to a word processor, maybe food water, um, as well as testing accommodations, like we mentioned, similar to the IEP of extra time, Scantron exempt, use of breaks. Um, and again, all you need for that really is a doctor's note with a medical diagnosis. Yes, you would think that, but I've been in districts where they wouldn't even give the 504, but going back a little bit. And, that, and that's little. where understanding um, how important it is to self-advocate. And, and, and as a parent, it's really, really, really a difficult, it's a difficult responsibility. And it's almost, I want to, there are wonderful, wonderful resources through CHAD, C-H-A-D-D, um, through Attitude, A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E. Um, if you look online, there's wonderful resources in, in special education Facebook groups, on Instagram, where you can learn more and more about your uh, about what the what your children um, should be able to access based on the IDEA Act, yeah. Right, but we, we haven't really explained why an IEP versus a 504, and this is really, really important. I have found that districts, some of the districts are using um, response to intervention, which means that if a child's mm -hmm. having some struggles, you see if you can just support them without giving them special accommodations and modifications, which makes sense if that's all the child needs is a little extra help. Mm -hmm. But some districts are using that in place of giving an IEP or a 504. Right. What so, are so, the... Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I, before trying to access an, an IEP, it's always really important to demonstrate that you have exhausted out-of-school supports, that you've tried OT out-of-school or tried PT out-of-school, that you've been in counseling, that you've tried medication, that you've tried everything, that you've done your due diligence as a parent, um, and that on a building level, the school's done their due diligence trying to accommodate without special services. Um, and, and, and that and that does put a lot of responsibility on the classroom teacher, on the parents. So um, wait, I, I don't think there's any any responsibility of the parents to do outside services. It's if the child needs services in school to function in school. I think right, it's but when you're functioning, absolutely. But when you are requesting an IEP, it, it mm -hmm. definitely. My experience has been, and, and you know what families have have shared with me is that they, they usually in in my experience, um, coordinating services as well, is that um, one of the things that is shared is that that parents have tried to supplement on their own, that they've tried, that they've tried to access, that they might have been involved in early intervention, that this isn't just something that's that's popped up. 
Right. The reason I'm pointing this out is that getting um, services through school is actually a legal right. Yes. And and proper advocacy, which you can do on your own. You don't necessarily have to pay, you know, not if you're, it's not an equal financial playing field. And I try it like to have it be an equal knowledge playing field. Sure. (laughs) So that it, it shouldn't be that only people with more money, you know, can access these services, they're meant to be need-based, right. right? So the IEP is a greater level of support needs. Yes. And, and usually it's when they are, unfortunately, to get the IEP, it's when they're, when they're grade levels behind. Right, right. That when the testing indicates that they've already fallen behind, they now qualify for an IEP. Right. And, and this brings up a separate issue. That I'm, I'm sorry, we didn't talk about this beforehand, which is the twice exceptional child. It's really a huge problem because some schools will say, your child is bright. They don't need services. And that's not necessarily true. Right. And then that's where you're demonstrating that there are deficits, that there are challenges in particular areas. And that in those particular areas, they are behind and then need services and interventions to address those specific areas. They might not need resource room, but they might need counseling on an IEP. Right. I'm going to mention a book that I used for my own child. It's called How to Compromise at the School District Without Compromising a Child by Gary Mayerson. It's an oldie but goodie. It's really worth buying because he really helps you learn to be, you know, a good advocate for your child. And and advocacy is something anybody can do for their child. And I think that getting the appropriate services for your child may be a huge battle, but really worth it. Because otherwise what's happening is maybe you're working hard at home. Maybe you're working hard in the social sphere, but school is a big part of your child's day. Right. And, and they are at school all day through right. and even, and hopefully through college and, and figuring out how to support them to thrive. Um, I know we were talking more about, um, you know, how do we support our high school students? Mm-hmm. My hope is that by high school, the IEP is in place, you know, that or we're not or the 504, that we're not waiting until high school to get those IEPs and 504s in place, that um, that the ADHD, that the learning differences are, are, are picked up early enough that, that, that the services and the supports are there through middle school into high school, and that they're almost just part of the educational experience that... Um, Yeah, but you know what, sometimes, and this brings up the whole issue of stigma, sometimes parents feel, you know what, I'm going to just do this at home. I really want (laughs) to to keep this private. I don't want it to be my child's permanent record. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for us to go into why it's so important to have these in place, at least by high school, and what that means when the child leaves high school. Right. So, so the question, just so I'm talking about, I'm talking about stigma. some kids have been, been getting services at home. They're getting tutored. They're getting an ADHD coach and they don't have a 504 and they don't have an IEP. And I think it's important to explain that the IDEA accommodations that your child's entitled to end when they graduate high school. Right. So I, I think that there are, that there's different ways of getting support. Absolutely. And, and if you are comfortable accessing services in school, or you are in a school that offers services, right. Um, especially if we're talking about parochial schools, religious schools, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, that sometimes can be a challenge. Um, so, so much of what we do is really talking to parents in high school, for example, uh, about the importance of establishing 
that classroom accommodations that are being given by teachers without a formal plan are, are really great that, that your son or daughter is being supported and feels nurtured and cared for. Um, and that, you know, extra time can happen during recess and sometimes they can take tests in parts, but that since none of it is official, there's, there's no paper trail. So come 11th grade or even 10th grade when you wanna take the PSAT or the um, PACT practice tests for, for, high school, uh, for college um, entrance, that you're not going to be entitled to these these accommodations or or come regents at the end of the year. You you really mm. do need if you're in a regent school, you really do need those 504 plans. They, the the accommodations have to be formalized, and, and, and that's where a formal diagnosis might come in. You know, speaking to a, a developmental pediatrician or a pediatric neurologist or or if you're able to, a, a pediatric psychiatrist, um, and, and really understanding that a uh, medical documentation that this that this diagnosis is real um, and and then discussing with the school district and the school about formalizing what might be um, school based accommodations that have been working but but formalizing them for right I think it can be really hard by the way to get to those specialists and a lot of pediatricians can do it as well it's really not rocket science honestly. Mm-hmm. To make the diagnosis. Um, and I also want to make the point that even if your child's in a parochial school, it doesn't mean they can't get a 504 plan. Um, no, related services are a little more complicated. They're not exactly parallel to those a child gets in public school, but it doesn't mean you can't get that either. Yeah, so it's an um, IESP. It's very hesitate. similar. Yeah, the, yeah. the IESP is, is very similar and it's offered through the district for the school. The 504 plans don't even have to be building level 504 plans. They can right. be. The school can make their own 504 plan, um, but they can also be through the school district and the school district can make the parochial schools um, 504 plans, those medical accommodation plans. Um, so, but really formalizing the, the accommodations, making sure that it's not just the school being so generous with time right. and being flexible at, as wonderful as that is. And it really is wonderful because that's what your, your son or daughter needs at some point in high school. It really does become important to have these formal plans. So if you do want to apply for accommodations on the SAT or the ACT or to be entitled to accommodations on the regents that, that you can really do that as, as well as make that paper trail for when you go to college. Um, and again, although accommodations are not guaranteed in college, when you do have have that neuropsychological evaluation, when you do have several years of an IEP or a 504 plan and a doctor's note that says, yeah, you have this medical diagnosis, you upload those documents after you've been accepted to college. Most schools now have a student access office or a student accommodation office. Every institution, every university has a different name for it. But then then those documents are are kind of looked over and, and the university will decide what accommodations they're going to be giving you. Right. And there is a form of entitlement. It's just under the American with Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not as extensive, but, it, but it's there. Yes. And, 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 and it should and, be used. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. One of the things that I'll do with the students that I work with are if they are approved for certain accommodations, but not others, we'll write a letter. We'll, we'll, we'll send in supporting documentation and, you know, accommodations might have to change over time as, as, as their needs change and and it, it's an ongoing process that's why you know in high school the IEPs are um, meetings are, are revisited annually you know educational testing though um, is done annually the psychological testing is usually done every three years but um, you know needs change over time and there can be 
growth and sometimes services that were there don't need to be there anymore. And sometimes additional services need to be put into place. And, and, and that's kind of where, when we think about um, neuroplasticity and the brain constantly changing, um, you know, in college, I've seen college students who were really struggling in high school really come into their own in college and, and figure out systems and ways of self-advocating and, and accommodations that work for them. And, and maybe they used to use the, um, the testing accommodations all the time, but as, they're, as they've been able to pick their courses, know that in certain types of seminars, they, they don't need accommodations and they're able to do group projects and, and long-term assignments. And, and um, you know the accommodations might've been something that they used at the beginning, but over time might have to use less. Right. And another big thing of college is parents aren't allowed. Yes. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. I just had a district chairperson and I was talking to and she says, you don't know how it feels to have an 18 year old. I can't go when I can't. And she's talking to her typical 18 year old. Yes. yes. So how do our parents get their kids ready to be self-advocates? <laughs> so. So I, I think the one thing that you can do as parents of eventual college students are to really establish good routines while they're still in high school mm. um, and, and kind of uh, work with your adolescent son or daughter um, to really learn how to self-advocate, um, to know how to access the right services, you know, to, and that's where that early psychoeducation of really taking away the stigma of what this ADHD is and something that they, that they own, that, that is part of them, that they can explain. Um, so by the time they, they do get to college where they possibly taken the SATs and ACTs with accommodations, um, you know, they've gotten into college um, and then once they're accepted are applying on their own for these new testing accommodations, right? Like the, 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 the accommodations offices are not talking to moms and dads anymore, but, but by establishing that this is important and supporting your son or daughter with that transition, um, offering them as a graduation gift, here's a copy of your IEP, your 504s, your neuropsychological testing, your doctor's letters. These are, this is what I've been keeping track of all these years. Um, here's the most updated one. Let's scan it upload it, make sure that it's sent in. Um, maybe we can go together and, and take a walk around campus, get to know where the accessibility office is, know where the counseling office is, know where the writing center is, really getting to know campus so that um, the ADHD college student who might not be great with executive functioning, you know, organization, time management, spatial planning, understanding what the campus looks like, knowing how to get from A to B without um, wazing it on their phone, um, but really, really working with them in high school to, to be independent so that by the time they get to college, those issues of FERPA, that confidentiality stuff is, is less of a concern because they're owning their own ADHD. They're owning that these supports are important. Right. And even for typical kids, it's a hard transition. I'm thinking of a story. I remember who wrote a book about how to help your kids be more independent earlier. I can't remember who it was. And she, she was at Yale, you know, she got into an Ivy League school and she would call up her mother and say, mom, I need batteries. She could see the CVS from her dorm window, but she mm -hmm. couldn't figure out how to get batteries. And she didn't even have yeah, in some ways, and 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 that's really where it's important to teach those life skills early. You know, I, I say like make your own lunch, 
know how to fold your laundry, put it away, maybe even do it. Um, take out the garbage, these life skills that where the work life balance of, you know, you're all student, but you're not part of the home doesn't necessarily teach you that work life balance so that when you get to college, you know how to do your laundry, remember to go and eat, remember to take your medicine on time, um, do your homework, go to the gym. These are all balancing acts that that to the ADHD college student can be really overwhelming. So slowly through high school, giving more opportunities to be independent. And I'm a huge fan of these summer immersion programs. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who has worked in um, college summer programs for high school students, it gives uh, high school students an opportunity to visit a university campus, take a university course, feel, know what it feels like to be in a, in a, in a university so that when it comes time to, to being a university student, they're a little bit familiar with the, the culture, the campus, feel a little bit more comfortable and know whether or not it's something they want to do immediately after high school or maybe a gap year, but to, to really become familiar. Um, and as I mentioned, Chad has wonderful resources for parents of, of um, high school and college students. And, and there's um, a number of books that you know, even if they're not super up to date are still really, really helpful. Um, ADHD and the College Student by Quinn, Coaching College Students with ADHD by Quinn Rady and Matlin, um, Survival Guide for College Students with ADHD or LD by Kathleen Adieu, or Ready to Take Off again by Matlin and Quinn. So there's a number of different books um, written. Each is a little bit different in focus, but these are um, great resources for parents trying to get an education on how to best educate their ADHD college students. That's amazing. And if you could send them to me, I'm going to try to get them in the line of notes, trying the accent word here. I'm not so good about that. Yeah. Um, but, but those are great. Those are great resources. Resources. Yeah. And, 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 and having conversations with your, with your, your, your kids before they go to college about what it'll be like, you know, almost like preparing them emotionally for that transition and, and really having supports in place. Um, and, and, and this is where, you know, it really depends on why your, what your child's needs are. Are you look, you know, we talked a little bit about different, different types of ADHD. Is it inattentive type? Is it hyperactive type? Is it a mixed presentation? Also, is it mild, moderate, or severe in terms of uh, uh, the impairment? How, 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 even if it's managed, how, um, how prominent it is in, in, especially in academic settings, especially in school. So, you know, when we're asking what a parent can do to help their kid with the transition to college do or not do, um, part of that legwork really happens before college, when you're picking college programs. You know, are you looking at a program that is specifically for ADHD um, students with learning differences? Um, are you looking at a college that is really well known for small classrooms and great supports on campus um, or, a, or a really wonderful college council culture with extracurriculars where you know your son or daughter will thrive and, and be able to find a happy place. Um, so it, it, there's really so many variables. And, and, and sometimes if, if you find the right school for your son or daughter, but they might not have the right academic supports in place, that's where ADHD coaching might come into place or um, executive functioning skills training um, with a therapist on the side to really support that transition to college in addition to possibly medication management. So there, there's so many options now, um, especially post-COVID with 
therapy and coaching moving really online and ADHD mm-hmm. coaching used to be on the phone, um, you know, going back 10 years. So like it's always been virtual um, because we, it's always been convenient. But um, with with COVID, um, wonderful programs like the Boost College program at Columbia is now remote. Like, yeah, and accepts insurance. Um, There are some really great, yeah, there are some really great supports now, virtual supports that can really, really support your your kids with that transition. Um, So just keep in mind, yes, parents, the role of parents in, in college is different. Um, there are programs like, you know, at Adelphi, the learning resource program, for example, where I work, um, does offer parent groups. There's monthly parent groups to, to support parents with parenting a, a, a college student with ADHD and learning differences. We have groups during the summer. We have a, a monthly group. Um, they're psychoeducational. They, they are, but they, they can be really supportive. Um, and through Chad chapters, through, um, you know, ADHD organizations that, that really offer support to parents at, at different stages. I want to go back to the high school, because if you're talking about being proactive, and you did talk about it a little bit about trying to get your high school student to be more independent with life skills, to take on more responsibility, starting this from scratch when they're in college, right? Um, how do you know what's too much for a parent to do and when they're being appropriately supportive? I know you said, you know, I tell people how to parent, but that's a question I always have is when, when are you doing too much for your kid to try to make it easier for them and you're not doing them a favor? And when is it actually needed? That's not an easy question. I'm sorry. No. And, and but I think that's what we all struggle with, right? It's finding hmm. the right difficult. It's finding that, that hmm. sweet spot of, of supporting and nurturing and doing it with love and kindness and patience and, and expressing that to your teenager. I, I'm asking you to put away your laundry, not because I just want your laundry to be put away, right. because I see the inherent value of developing a, a, a sense of responsibility for your belongings. Right. And, and, and sometimes, especially with the ADHD clients that I work with, it, it has to be spelled out like that. It's not enough to tell them what to do. They want to know right. why they want to understand why, what's the value. This is really hard. It, it's much harder for them than it is for uh, uh, someone that doesn't have ADHD. The, the organ, the, the, the steps that go into putting away your laundry are really hard. If you think about it. Everything's laid out on the bed. You have to first separate it. How are you going to separate it? Then you have to put it in piles, right? Then you have to fold it. And then you have to find places for it in your room. And your room might be a disaster, right? You might want to put it in your your shirts in your shirt drawer, but your shirts might also have your socks and your pants and your pajamas. And then you have to dump everything out and start all over again. And that's where the procrastinating comes in because it's just so difficult. One of the things that I say to um, my clients when I start to work with them, ADHD can sometimes feel like your brain has all the information that's in a filing cabinet, but someone like mm. pulled it out and dumped it on the floor. Mm. And you have to now go in and find the papers and organize them. And most of the time, you know where they are. Like, you know, they're there and you're, and you're confident. It just takes you longer. It's more stressful. 
right? You might avoid it for longer because it's not necessarily as easy as if you opened up the drawer and there were tabs. Um, so how do you explain to your kid that there's inherent value in putting away the laundry when the laundry is just so difficult to put away or waking up 10 minutes earlier in the morning to have a good breakfast with their medication and to get in the habit of packing their lunch the night before and taking it out of the fridge and remembering to put it in their backpack. Um, it's hard. It's hard because it, it's not easy for any kid, but a kid that has executive functioning deficits, it's even harder. So I, I think as, as, as a parent and as someone who spends my days with, with ADHD college students and my nights with, with clients that um, are managing ADHD, they are managing. Um, the, the one thing that I can say is unconditional support and love and kindness and encouraging them to be as kind to themselves as possible. And if they miss a day or two and they forget their lunch and they are hungry all day, but don't really have an appetite because they took their medicine, they can break that cycle. And that forgiveness and being forgiving of themselves is part of this learning process. Right. I like that a lot. But what about students who didn't get the support to be reorganized filing cabinet on their own, so to speak, and now they're in college? Yes. Then what? So depending on the college campus, there are usually services there. There's a counseling Mm -hmm. center and, and there are groups and there are, um, support such as the boost program for executive functioning skills training, which is now really the approach that we're looking at of how to support ADHD college students with learning to become organized, you know, um, learning how to consistently use an organization system, figuring out a lifestyle choices that work for them, syncing their computer with their telephone and, and finding the right apps and the, and the right interfaces. One of the things that I do with my clients is figuring out Google systems that work for them. If they're on a, if their university is on a system that uses Gmail, making sure that their professors invites and office hours and classes and assignments are all there at the beginning of the semester because they're all there on the syllabus and setting aside some time with either a counselor in the counseling center, mm-hmm. a private counselor, a, a coach, a educational consultant, because there are so many different professions that now support ADHD college students, but really taking that time to organize themselves with that semester. You know, putting the class on repeat in their calendar, making sure that there's notifications, and, and then committing themselves to weekly check-ins to check over their calendar, to know what's coming up. Um, and, and these small little lifestyle changes through freshman year, um, the more that the college student uses them, the, the more it becomes part of a routine, part of a habit. They know at the beginning of the semester when they get a syllabus, they can plot those classes in and those assignments into their Google calendar, which is then synced with their professor's invites and office hours and their phone and maybe an eCampus or Moodle or Canva or whatever college system, organizational system their college is using. Um, so, So these little changes, you know, maybe can be done on, on their own, or if there's more moderate to severe ADHD, there, there might need to be um, support systems in place to help the ADHD college student with making consistent changes. Um, and, and those supports can be found within the university or privately or through insurance. And one of the ways that I, I explain it to the students and the, and the, and the clients that I work with is it's that it's almost like personal trainers. Um, 
you know, anyone can go to the gym, anyone can exercise, but if it's something that you're struggling with, it's something that doesn't come naturally to you. It can be really beneficial to, to use a personal trainer, to use an ADHD coach or a therapist, someone to really support you with that learning process, with that journey. Right. You know, we need to talk about mood disorders. Um, you know, we talked about how comorbid they are and uh, I'm sure you're aware about the state we're in right now with um, teens and mental health. I, almost every teenager I see has some degree of anxiety and depression, even without coexisting ADHD. Yeah. So I, I need to hear from you how that plays out on the college campus. Right. So, so let's take a minute and, and, and step back and, and look at stats from the National Resource Center on mm. ADHD. Uh, it's a program of CHAD. Um, and, and think about coexisting conditions. That, the, that with ADHD, there are other medical conditions that, that, um, that, that need to be treated simultaneously or separately from the ADHD. And, and, and that's part of the challenge of, of addressing ADHD in, in, in any population, but in particular in the adolescent college age population that, that you're talking about, where they're really has been an, 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 I don't want to say it's a crisis, even though there's, there's plenty of literature that it is, but where it's particularly acute right now, um, that two years at home with, um, limited socialization and interaction and different learning, um, really, really, um, really, really, um, made it worse. It's a hot mess. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 and to be honest with each, you know, quarantines and COVID mm -hmm. for ADHD high school and college students was really difficult for different reasons. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. Sleep patterns were off. Right. You were home all the time. Class patterns were off. The expectation of exercise and routine were just not there for, so for a population that really struggles with routine, you throw them in your house for six, eight, 10 weeks, whatever it was at the beginning, and then a quarantine and repeated quarantines possibly last year, the, 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 the routine was completely thrown out the window. Right. Although I had some kids who did better with remote for various reasons. Yes. And, and, and the remote learning might've been great, except mm. that, it, that, and, and I see that at, at work, I, there are college students that have ADHD and they can focus better at home. Right. They, can. It doesn't, they don't have the distractions. They don't have that balance of dealing with food and laundry and social pressure. And, and they're doing really well learning remotely from home. And, and I, you know, I just had a, a student that I work with who has opted to switch to an online bachelor's program, found a program that really works for their their learning needs. And, and that's wonderful. And, and right. there are, there are, there are silver linings, but for the vast majority of students, mm. ADHD with ADHD, um, remote learning and, and the lack of routine of being home like that was really, really, um, devastating. So looking at comorbidities, um, or what I like to call coexisting conditions, other things that are there at the same time, um, it, it is really why it, it's so important to go to a licensed mental health professional go to someone who really understands that right. ADHD is not just a, a learning difference. It's not like something that you can really master in a six week um, coaching certificate that um, when you are dealing with other health conditions, when there are other things going on, it's so important. Whether that therapist is through insurance, through the school, through the district, 
however you get the help that you need, um, make sure that it's someone that understands the bigger picture, that, that an ADHD high school, college student is, is not just struggling with the ADHD. Um, often, even though I, I do have a very behavioral approach, meaning I, I work a lot with my clients and students on developing skills, developing resilience, looking at looking at exercise and routines and, and eating and all these lifestyle things as well, um, utilizing a lot of techniques from cognitive behavioral therapy. So thinking things differently, practicing things differently. Um, also the coaching pieces of executive functioning skills training of um, calendars and organization systems working with um, for example, high school students on figuring out the best note-taking system, figuring out, do you need an accordion folder with, and once a week emptying it out at home and, and transferring it to, um, you know, a, a, a binder at home, different systems. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of behavioral therapy, but at the same time, the, the coaching does have its limitations when you are working with um, high school and college students who have ADHD and other coexisting other other, other conditions, um, including just processing what ADHD has done to their lives, you know, especially if the ADHD diagnosis came, for example, in high school or college or even graduate school. Um, so thinking about coexisting conditions, um, one of the things that we hear a lot about um, and research does support is that there's high... Uh, that there is a connection between ADHD and sleep disorders, um, specifically circadian rhythm disorders. Um, and, and that's one of the, you know, I, again, I, I would always say go to a medical professional to make sure that there are breathing issues, a pulmonologist, a sleep specialist, resting leg syndrome or partially apnea or other other conditions that that would complicate it um but if there are lifestyle changes that can be made such as healthy bedtime routine reducing screen time as we decide as discussed um limiting naps and caffeine as we discussed increasing exercise so these lifestyle changes that will address the sleep disorders as well as improve the adhd so that's just one of them um we know that more than 50 percent of of adolescents have um, of, with ADHD also might have a tick disorder or, or be diagnosed with Tourette's where it's really important to be followed by a neurologist or, or, a, or a specialist to really- Did you say 50, five, zero? Up to, yeah, the, the, Chad, Chad has more than 50 um, with it's ADHD high. have some, it, it is high, it is high um, based on, but a tick disorder can be minor. Right. Um, it, it can be, you know, repetitive rhythms. So, um, so just being mindful that when there is a tick disorder and, and ADHD, that there are, that there is, um, support for coexisting conditions as well as ODD disruptive behaviors, which are a little bit more prominent, um, and, 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 and really, um, you know, the estimate is as high as 40%. That seems high to me. You know, sometimes I feel like with ADHD, the impulsive behaviors are just mm -hmm. misunderstood. Right. And so important to really understand um, what is oppositional, what is being intentionally defiant and what is just impulsive behaviors. And, that, and that's really where parent-child interaction training for younger kids or parent-teen therapy for executive functioning um, can become really, really important. And, and at home, having structure and routine as, war, as well as a warm, caring environment and, and that finding that balance like we discussed earlier is, is really, really, is really difficult. I just want to emphasize the parent-child interaction because I wish it were more accessible to people. I really think that parents of young kids on the more, you know, severe end of the ADHD spectrum, these are kids who by three to five, you know, we can see that they're on the ADHD spectrum. 
I wish it were accessible. So I, so, um, more and more college, um, training institutes. So for example, Hofstra Salt, um, Salzburg center, um, center. Delphi, I believe has. Hofstra too. Yeah. Adelphi, um, through the Derner Institute has institutes where there's really wonderful services being offered by interns and externs. So these are licensed psychologists, um, mental health professionals, um, that are really, really trained in supporting families with, with evidence-based practices. So, so if you are, um, close to a university, definitely it's worth checking out with their, with, with their psychology school, whether or not they do have a clinic or, or a training institute that, that does offer sliding scale um, treatments. Right. And, and there isn't a possibility of getting what's called parent training through, through IEPs IEP. Absolutely. or Absolutely. even early intervention um, or a committee for preschool Younger special children. ed. Yeah. 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 And maybe as yeah. an advocate, as a parent, you can say, I want that parent child interaction model. I need it from somewhere and just try saying it. Or with a behavior therapist. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, what is parent-child interaction? I mean, you and I know, but so it it is it, it's more of a manualized approach, and, and really it's for young with with younger children, right? And, and really with with older, the the focus is really more on teen parent teen therapy for mm-hmm. executive functioning deficits and ADHD, which is Sibley's approach from um, from Mount Sinai. So thinking about the mood disorders, thirty eight percent have coexisting mood disorders. 38. That, that's high. Mm, um, I believe it. But to me, it's an underestimate. Yeah, me too. Um, so, you know, we're, we're looking at national averages and, 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 and working within the Jewish community as well. You know, there, there's other coexisting um, conditions um, that, that are there. Depression, 14% in kids, 47 in adults, estimated anxiety, 30% in kids, 53 in adults. In, in my practice, I see much higher. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will also say that I see a lot of teens whose families didn't want them on medication and they are so likely to have anxiety and depression by the time they're in adolescence. Right. Right. And, and when the ADHD is under control, it's amazing how quickly um, the the anxiety of trying to keep all the right. all all the um, all the pieces together it just it just disappears and and then the work becomes working on the self esteem right and that's the and irony of, of right I'm sorry that's the irony of fear of stigma I don't want to tell my child I don't want them to feel bad about themselves I won't tell them that they have ADHD right and they feel so much worse about themselves because they don't know why they're different. Right. And then, and they do, they, uh, you know, right. everyone, all, all the high school and college students that I've ever worked with feel different. I, right. I, I, and I always go back to that book. You mean right. I'm not lazy, stupid, or crazy. It's, it, it, it it's, it's so telling because right. you're constantly feeling like you're not reaching your potential. And on a daily basis, having all those little, you know, microaggressions, right, it's right. debilitating. And, and, sure. and, and it does impact your self-esteem. And we spend so much time as parents just saying, we just want our kids to be happy. You know, we just want them to be happy. We want them to feel good. We want them to, to, to grow up and, and, and just be happy and healthy. A way of doing that is really offering them the gift of a diagnosis, that they're not crazy, lazy, or stupid. They have ADHD. It's a medical condition. It is a condition that you can learn to manage and thrive with. Um, and, and, 
And once the ADHD is under control and there is really good therapy there to kind of process what ADHD was like, how it impacted you over the years, how your life might've been different, how it can still be different. Um, you know, the depression, and the anxiety, it, it, it might still be there, but it might not be as severe. And if it is still there and you're still suffering from a coexisting condition, then you know that the depression, and the anxiety have to be treated separately. And, right. and then, and then there might be other treatments that are really, really um, supported with addressing the anxiety and the depression. And, and, and that's when it's so helpful to think of things as baby steps, right. one thing at a time. Um, you don't need to, to do everything at once as parents, but you know, if you're constantly growing and constantly trying, um, and, and self-advocating and accessing services, whether they're in school or privately or through insurance, um, that, that you really can support your, your son or daughter with, with learning how to thrive with ADHD. Right. And I, I also have parents who are afraid that the medication will be addictive or lead them to somehow substance abuse. Yeah. And, and the coexisting condition of ADHD is substance abuse. Right. You know, if we're looking at, if we're looking at a population that's struggling with coexisting conditions, as well as the ADHD, they, there's going to be self-medicating and, and, and the, and this idea that stimulants lead to substance abuse in my experience has been, it's the high school and college students that are not properly medicated by a psychiatrist, by a neurologist, by a pediatrician are going to seek out ways of feeling better. They're going to seek out ways of self-medicating. And that's when they are going to try to treat themselves with, with alcohol, with, with, with pills that are not from their doctor's office or the pharmacy, um, with, with, with marijuana, with, with, different ways of feeling better that are not necessarily um, um, that are not necessarily going to lead to healthy habits in the long run. Right. And I think that's also a really big concern by when they get to college. Yes. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you have some of your clients go off their medication going to college or just become less compliant. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the issue of compliance is constantly a struggle for ADHD college students, especially if they were being dispensed the medication at home, you know, and, and it wasn't their responsibility and they weren't part of this process and there wasn't buy-in. And, and, and sometimes it's because they're not on the right meds and, and the side effects are not, are not working for them and, and might be so severe that it's just not worth it. So then it's really a matter of working with your your, your physician around figuring out what would be the right medication. And over the years, um, there has been so many gains in the options, you know, it used to be, mm -hmm. you know, Ritalin. Well, now there's Vyvanse. Now there are, um, off-label ways of treating ADHD that, that might not be a stimulant, especially if there is an addiction history right. or, um, comorbidities with, with something like mood disorders, such as bipolar, where you, you might be, have a family history of, of being concerned about these stimulants. So it's really important to talk to a trusted physician, talk to someone who really understands where you're coming from and, and is willing to work with you on finding the right medication. Right. And if it's the wrong person, switch. Don't be afraid. Yeah. 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 Really and, important. And that also happens in college. I, I mean, where I work, we have students from all over the country. You know, I, I work in a program for college students who have 
ADHD and learning differences. And, and sometimes, you know, the, re, the remote medi- medication management um, sessions are just not working for them and they'll switch to a, a, a local physician um, and, and, and really might switch medications even and, and, and report that they're feeling great. Um, and, and the nice thing about some of the medications is they can feel a difference almost immediately. Right. You know, and, and, and if they do have side effects that are really, really difficult, if they don't dissipate, they can adjust them and, and go off them. And, and um, you know, I, I think for, for college students, the medication management piece um, is really, really a challenge for some and for others, especially if it's been normalized over a long time, it, it's second nature. And it's just like something that they do. Um, the same way that a diabetic takes their insulin or someone that suffers from migraine takes their aspirin. It, this is what they do to be able to thrive with ADHD. Um, and, and the other thing that just going back to substance, because that is such a, an area of concern that, that stimulants prescribed stimulants are a gateway. My experience has been with, with high school and college students who are not properly medicated or don't right. have the tools whether it's through exercise and sleep and eating and just routine mindfulness, but really exercise, exercise is tremendous. Exercise and sleep are so important. Um, but if there is that impulsivity, the, the risk taking of the ADHD college students and high school students, it is really shocking. And, and it's when there's the, the, this, the risk taking that concerns me. And then it's a matter of really talking to my clients, students about, um, identifying how much risk they're willing to take and, 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 and really understanding how they might feel on a day-to-day basis versus when they are being impulsive, um, and, and risk management. So that, that, that's also just something to keep in mind. Right. And it underscores the need to give your child more independence and more to be part of the process much earlier on. Mm-hmm. Right. And we were going to talk about um, after college and we have like no time. So, <laughs> I don't know if you want to say. No, a, I, I a, think in, in a nutshell, I actually yeah. ran a, a parent group. Was it last week, two weeks ago um, to support parents with with um, the the um, the transition out of college? And I say it, it, it never starts too early. As soon as your mm-hmm. your 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 son or daughter is in college have conversations with the um, college career counseling center to discuss resume cover letters, summer internships, or even opportunities on campus during college, because we know that um, college students with ADHD might not thrive in the classroom. Some do, but some really, really struggle in the classroom that it's the extracurricular experiences on campus. It might be volunteering on campus or off campus internships, externships, you know, summer jobs um, are really where they can shine. And it's so important early on in that resume building experience of being in college to really focus on the non-academic opportunities for college students, where it's not only building their confidence um, and offering them life skills that are not found in the classroom, it's also separating them from other other college students. I also would say that encouraging your son or daughter to utilize their accommodations, make sure that they have an updated neuropsychological if they plan on applying to graduate school and need accommodations on graduate school um, for graduate school admissions tests. Um, And and also utilizing the career counseling centers at at your college to make sure that, um, you know, if there's social skills 
challenges to know how to interview, writing cover letters, resumes, um, maybe meeting with a, a, a career coach on the side, depending on what a college does or doesn't offer. So, so really just being open-minded the, the same way that, that you would with your high school's high school student, really just be supportive and, and a resource to um, your, your ADHD college kid, because, you know, we say the adolescent brain doesn't finish developing until 25, right. you know, they're, they're as, as independent as they are, right. and they still really do benefit from that supportive, well, the environment going back to Winnicott, just of the, of the good enough parent, being there, knowing that you're available, that you, that you care, and that um, they can come back to you when they're, when they are struggling. I love that. And I also want to say, when you say 25, are you talking about the neurotypical brain? It is. Yeah. And, and, and we say that it just, it does take longer, right? Yeah. It takes longer for, takes for longer. you know, the neurodivergent brain considerably longer, potentially. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing that I have noticed is the tremendous growth that happens in college, mm-hmm. you know, um, having worked with middle school and then high school and now college students um, professionally, there, there's so many opportunities for growth. And I think part of that growth is really what happens outside of the classroom, learning opportunities, internships, mm-hmm. extracurriculars, um, life experiences, and, 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 and really learning how to thrive and managing their, managing their challenges, but also like utilizing their creativity, finding majors and, and programs that really, really speak to their strengths. And, and that can be really empowering for an ADHD person who in high school had to take, you know, the Regents curriculum and had to do certain things in college. They can really, really specialize and thrive and find what, you know, that right difficult, find something that encourages um, creativity and curiosity and, and, and um, supports self-esteem and, and self-exploration. Right. And we didn't talk about the gap year, you know, in Orthodox homes, they often go to Israel and what the role of that is. Because what I was thinking before is your child may graduate from college and just not be ready to launch yet. And that might be just because they're not mature enough. Is that possible? Sure. And, and that's one of the things that we do talk to the parents about in when when I am talking to to college parents and, and facilitating groups is that that, you know, maybe you want to hold off before applying to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Maybe there needs to be a year to work, um, volunteer, mm-hmm. move back home and not have the pressure of, of work life balance and, and really exploring what options are, because during college, it might just be too much work to also think about career planning, that balancing, that juggling right. that, that some people can do. And, and that year after college can be, really be wonderful because, um, the, the, the co- recent college grad can explore different jobs, different volunteer opportunities, internships, externships. Now there's micro internships uh, with a lot of colleges, whereas many paid internships. Yeah, there's so many great opportunities, both in person and, re- and remote, that, um, that um, there, there's really no rush. I love that. I love this really no rush. I'm thinking about the good enough, you know, approach. Totally. One of right? the things that I love about some of the parents that I work with is they say, you you don't need to take the full 16 credits, 12 credits, slow and steady, enjoy the experience, really learn, have time to explore different interests, clubs, committees, volunteer opportunities, and and that you don't let, you know, school get in the way of your education, that you really (laughs) take advantage of these college years Right. I love that. You know, we could be talking all night. 
<laughs> there's so much more for us to cover. But I'm going to stop here. I want to thank you so, so, so much for doing this with me. This is so much amazing information, so useful. Where can we find you? Um, so my name is Rachel Fryman. Um, <laughs> feel free to take a look at my um, at my uh, Women's Mental Health Consortium or my Psychology Today page. I am currently working on a website um, and, and hope to have it launched this summer. Amazing. So it's spelled R-A-C-H-E-L-F-R-Y-M-A-N. And you can be found on Psychology Today. Yes. Excellent. The Women's Mental Health Consortium. And Women's Mental Health. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.